Well, you're probably familiar with that saying, um, charity begins at home. I don't know who first said it or, or where it came from, uh, but these days it's usually taken to mean uh, that you should offer help and assistance to those who are closest to you before you go looking further afield for people who are in need. But charity actually means much more than making a donation. It's an old English word, an archaic English word for love. Um, the English got it from the Normans, the Normans got it from the French, the French took it from Latin, and uh, Latin borrowed it from Greek. Um, but in archaic English, uh, it, it, it was the Christian word for love, and it was usually found together in company with faith and hope. Faith, hope, and charity. Well, as we go on in the text of Ephesians today, we come to a point at which Paul is concerned with the Christian life in its most everyday expression, at home and at work. And he's intent on describing how the Christian practice of faith, hope and charity, or love, has to become real in, in those basic contexts in which we find ourselves. Well, by way of a quick reminder, um, we've, we've seen how Paul's letter to the Ephesians divides fairly neatly into two halves, that pivot on a central command in chapter 4, verse 1, which is, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling you have received. Now, chapters 1 to 3 describe the calling of the Christian life in, in terms of the, the riches and the privilege we have in belonging in Christ, and not only as individuals, but as a church, as a body. And, and what we discovered there is, is uh, we've been included not only in God's great purposes for the whole cosmos, but we've been included in the life of Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Well, chapters 4 to 6 then set about telling us how that belonging in Christ should lead to newness in life. And the metaphor that Paul uses is the very pedestrian metaphor of walking. So if chapters 1 to 3 are, are full of an abundance of lavish language, of, of praise and prayer then chapters 4 to 6 really just get down to the business of the Christian life, really in the most mundane circumstances uh, that we have to do with. And so today's text is a, is a challenge to live transformed lives in the very ordinary and, and often very unsatisfactory circumstances in which we find ourselves from a Monday through to Sunday. Well, we ought to begin by observing how Paul's discussion of Christian households, you know, husbands, wives, children, parents, slaves and masters, is not actually separated from what precedes it uh, in verses 15 um, through to 20. Now, un unfortunately, English translators often punctuate uh, verse 21, which is, submit yourselves out of reverence to to one another out of reverence to Christ. They often punctuate this as though it were a new sentence and in some English Bibles it becomes a new paragraph and apparently a new subject. But in fact, verse 21 belongs as part of a what's a fairly long and cumbersome sentence originally so that translators have to stick a full stop in for a breath somewhere and it's just unfortunate they stick a stop here because verse 21 is not the start of something new. It's, it's the continuation of a thought that began before. And the basic thought begins back in verse 15. Here it is in a different translation. Consider carefully how you walk, 
not as unwise people, but as wise people, making the most of your time, given that the present days are evil. So do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. The whole idea of this passage, everything we read today, is that we would walk wisely, that we're people who know how to walk with wisdom. The best definition of wisdom I know is offered by an Old Testament scholar with the great name of Gerhard von Rad. And he says, by, by wisdom, the Bible means this, that people, through knowledge of Yahweh, must learn how to become competent with regards to the realities of life. Now, did you catch that wisdom means becoming competent with regards to the realities of life? That means we, wisdom is, is how to become skillful at negotiating all the complexities that daily life will throw up to us, all, all the affairs of human existence. And that includes our lives at home and our lives at work. But the Bible insists to live wisely, that is to live competently, to live skillfully, you must first know God. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And that's exactly what Paul tells us in verse 17. He says the opposite of foolish living is to understand what God's will is. So whatever Paul's trying to tell us here about how to conduct ourselves skillfully in the affairs of our daily lives, it begins with knowing God and grounding ourselves in the fact that God has a plan. He, he has a purpose. He has an end in view. He knows where he's going with all of this. And so Christian living essentially involves falling in step with God's concerns for what's going on, God's work in the world. So why does the Apostle Paul go so quickly to a description of a Christian household? You know, Christians at home, as it were. Why would that be important? Well, the reason is that the household, this, this unit he's just described, was the central social unit of the Greco-Roman world of the first century. You know, a husband, a wife, children, parents, uh, slaves with a master. These were the fundamental relationships uh, of every household in the ancient world. To a greater uh, or lesser extent, your place in society was defined by one of those roles. Now, it's important to see that Ephesians 5 is not talking about uh, a Western nuclear family living in a private house out in the suburbs, you know, which is, usually means uh, somewhere far removed from the places that we work and indeed the places that we worship. Um, the ancient first century household was much more like those traditional intergenerational Italian households that you might still find down in Fremantle. So if you can picture the household where the parents, the children, the grandparents, the aunts, the uncles, the cousins, you know, they, they all share the same house or the same group of houses, uh, often living upstairs or out the back of the family business that opens onto the street. And they all, they all work in this business together. Well, that's what the ancient household was like. It was, it was both a private residence, but it was also a public place of business. And so the ancient household was also the principal economic unit of the ancient world. And indeed, the very word economy comes from the Greek word for running the household. Um, 
And within this picture, the, 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 the uh, ancient concept of household slavery was different to what we might imagine today. Slavery was almost the equivalent of being an employee, perhaps a bit more like being uh, a lifelong indentured servant in a Victorian mansion in, in England. Um, so Margaret MacDonald, uh, uh, a New Testament scholar who studies these things, warns us apply, against applying a too simplistic approach to the biblical understanding of an ancient household. Because she says, the more we know about Greco-Roman society from this era, the more apparent it becomes that the relationships between husbands and wives, and indeed between slaves and masters, were much, much more complex than what we might first imagine. But what we do know for sure is that the ancient household that Paul's just described here was the unavoidable social reality um, that, that, that describes the family life and the work of most people in that society, including Christians. So we ought to pause and ask ourselves then, well, what evaluation does Paul make of the social structures of his day? Because to be honest, Ephesians 5 is a text that a lot of people would prefer we ignored. I mean, here is a text that historically has been used to justify slavery. And from this text, the Apostle Paul and we Christians are, are widely accused of pres uh, promoting misogyny and even abuse of children. So what's Paul's view? Well, his view isn't consistent with any of that, in fact. Back in Ephesians 2, he referred to his own period of history, indeed the period of history we're still living in, as this present evil age. And he talked about the society of his day and our day as a human order governed by the ruler of the kingdom of the air. In shorthand, the devil. And so that's why he says in verse 16 that we read today, make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. So far from endorsing unequal and unjust social structures of his day, Paul sees that they belong in, in, a, in a structure and in a world that's functioning as intrinsically an evil place, intrinsically um, a demonic place. That's how he sees these structures. Well, that still leaves the problem, though, uh, that many uh, scholars ask about why, why then doesn't Paul speak more strongly against these unjust structures? Why doesn't he speak out against the subjugation of women or the abuse of children or the institution of slavery, which was, was huge in his day? Well, another female biblical scholar, Karen, Carolyn Oziek, um, who again is very interested in this issue, uh, would advise us that Paul's words to this household or to Christian households are far more radical than we realise. Um, and, and she maintains that Paul's view of the Christian household in Ephesians 5 is meant as a countercultural challenge to the prevailing way that people lived in those relationships. So Paul isn't attempting to, to speak to the social order of his day and, and to dismantle the social order of his era, or even any era. His primary concern here is to teach Christians how home and work are the basic arenas of God's action 
in the lives of believers. This is the place where God is at work to mature us into Christ-like holiness. The household, it's the basic context for growing up in Jesus, for learning to live wisely. So Paul isn't looking for a social reformation up here. He's envisioning a gospel revolution that takes place down here at the very roots of society. And in Paul's thinking, the household is where the Christian witness to the world begins. Charity begins at home. One other thing we need to know about the Christian household, and that is the early church had no buildings like we do that they met in. They, they didn't employ anyone. Uh, they didn't even have the kind of organisational structure we had. The church met, by and large, in the home of a, a wealthy member of the congregation, um, someone who, who was rich enough to have a household, and they would meet in his, or in some cases, in her home. And that meant the Christian congregation, the local congregation, included the members of that household, mum and dad, the kids, aunties, uncles, cousins, and the slaves. So the Christian household was more than a basic social unit, more than the basic economic unit. For Christians, it was the core unit of the worshipping community. So what is Paul's vision for the gospel that's supposed to be lived out in the household? What does it look like? Well, it actually starts not in verse 21, but back in verse 18. Let me give you a more literal translation from verse 18. He says, Do not become intoxicated with wine so that you live recklessly, but rather go on being filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and Spirit-inspired songs, singing and making music in your hearts to the Lord, constantly giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. Worship and the Holy Spirit define everything here. Uh, the NIV uses um, the word debauchery, and, and the metaphor of wine and debauchery is put in front of us to describe you know, uncontrolled, reckless, thoughtless living, um, the, the absolute opposite of wisdom, right? Well, we get a picture of debauchery, in Jesus' parable in Luke 15 of the younger son, remember, who takes his inheritance and heads off to a far-off land where he squanders it there on wild living, or well, the word again literally is debauchery. Now, generally, our imaginations fill up a great word like debauchery with pictures of wild parties and, I don't know, prostitutes and methamphetamine, I don't know what you're thinking. But the emphasis of the word actually falls on the image of the young man squandering his resources. He's reckless. He's, he's frittering away what he has uh, on trivialities and left until he is left destitute. That's what debauchery is. So Christians are to be the opposite. To be wise, to walk carefully, is to take careful stock of what God's given you to take stock of where he's put you, the relationships that are around you, the work you have to do. Because we're a people who are learning to see where God is at work in the ordinary circumstances of our lives. We're people learning to see the world as God sees it. 
and learning in that world to follow his direction and his purpose. We're a people learning to let the Holy Spirit fill us and direct us. That's the first order of the day in Paul's thinking here. We're a spirit-filled people, and so we are listening and responding. And everything Paul goes on to say from this point, everything through to the end of the text we read today, is an expression of this one command in verse 18, which is, go on being filled by the Spirit. That's the main action. And this is where English translations just struggle to punctuate it well for us. Because what we actually have here is not a string of unrelated ideas. We have one idea, being filled with the Spirit, that heads up everything that follows. Everything that follows is an expression of that, which is speak to one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, sing, make music in your hearts, give thanks, submit yourselves to one another. All those five actions are the results of allowing the Holy Spirit to work within us, allowing Him to shape a life of worship in the most mundane areas of our lives. And so, only now does Paul have something to say about the specifics of Christian relationships within this worshipping community. And everything he has to say about husbands, wives, children, parents, slaves and masters is redefined in terms of that last verb, submit yourselves to one another. Now, there are other known examples in Greek literature where uh, someone will write to the head of a household uh, and, ad and address the, the conduct of the members of the household. This, what, what Paul's doing here is not a new thing. It, it's been done before. And generally, um, it, it will concern a set of instructions given to the master on how all the inferiors should conduct themselves. But nothing needed to be said to the master about he should, how he should conduct himself, because he didn't have any obligations. He was to be served. So what Paul does here is really quite radical, because he begins each section, you'll notice, by addressing the so-called, if you want to think of it, inferior partner of the household relationship, but then he'll turn around and address the superior partner. And if you stand back and look at it, most of what he has to say um, is addressed not to wives and children and slaves, but to husbands, fathers and masters. And of course, in most households, that's one and the same person. And what Paul has to say is also astounding. Now, you know, the words that fall hardest on our ears, things like wives submit, slaves obey, they would hardly have even been noticed by Paul's listeners. I mean, you know, what else did a wife do in that society? What else was a slave going to do? Margaret MacDonald again says, it's actually difficult to know if the women who heard these instructions would have interpreted them, interpreted them as a call to change their behaviour in any way. In fact, she says, Paul's words would have been so familiar as to be practically ignored. But the words that would have made Paul's listeners really sit up and take notice are precisely the words that we take for granted. Right? Husbands are to love their wives. 
Now, the idea that a husband and a wife might love each other, that, that wasn't a new idea in the ancient world, not terribly revolutionary. But the idea that a husband was in some way to submit his own life to his wife as a fellow believer to the extent that he might forego his own desires, that he might even lay down his own physical life, that was unheard of. That was ridiculous. And nothing in ancient society compelled a master to treat his slave as anything more than a piece of pottery. Yeah? But here, Paul commands the master to treat their slaves as fellow believers. And that means not only fairly and compassionately, but with humility. Precisely because masters are to understand that they too are God's slaves. And, and fathers are meant to direct the discipline and training of children towards the children's benefit, not their own. The primary verb that is used here of how a father relates to the child usually means to nourish. And it, it's most often used of the relationship of a, of a mother breastfeeding a child than a father raising a child. So I want you to see here is a complete disturbance of the prevailing order of the day. Not only is the master of the household humbled and given a new vision of life, but look at the value this passage assigns to the other members of the Christian community. Women who are wives, because you understand you're either a wife or you're a widow or you're too young to be either. Wives and slaves are given a very different status here because Paul says that they are ultimately God's children. Throughout Paul's letters, generally, believers, whether male or female, slave or free, are what? They're firstborn sons. They have the, the status and the dignity of, of the elder son of the family. And the very act of worshipping together as a household, of slaves and masters, women, wives, children, husbands, breaking bread side by side in the Lord's Supper was a great social equaliser in itself. You know, this would have been a radical shake-up of pagan values and something that set the Christian community apart from its neighbours. Well, charity begins at home. What should we say then about our own situation? Well, let me say this one more time because it's so important. But the mundane circumstances of our lives, you know, home, and work, which generally for most of us occupies the vast bulk of our week and our time and our effort, this is the basic arena in which God desires to train us up into a life of holiness, into a life of mature Christ-likeness. You know, it's a common misconception in the evangelical community to see, and I can say this because there isn't a full-time pastor here, but it's a common misconception to see full-time pastoral work, cross-cultural ministry as, as sort of the, the pinnacle of the real work that God wants doing. But you have to understand those roles, those ministries, those gifts are exceptional. They, they, they play out of very uncommon gifts that God's giving. In Ephesians 4, Paul described the role of pastors and evangelists, amongst other things, as the gifts that were necessary for equipping the bulk of the rest of us to do ministry. And that means serving Jesus in the very place 
He's put us. Being a pastor, being a teacher, being an evangelist, this isn't the real work. They're the jobs that are necessary so that we can get on with the real work, which is walking wisely in the world. And it's important to see that Paul doesn't disparage the household, this ordinary place of work and and economic activity and and day-to-day relationships. In his first letter to the Corinthian church, he commanded them, each of you should live your life as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to you, just as God has called you. In other words, your life is not a mistake. Your family, your place of birth, your social situation, the country you are in, these are God's gifts to you. He intends you to take them seriously because he is, in fact, far more involved in the circumstances of the world than we usually suppose him to be. And so he intends us to live out our lives right where we are, to to take very seriously the places, the people, the work that he's put in front of us. That's the norm for the Christian life. Going off elsewhere isn't. And so charity really does begin at home. I mean, there is no place like your own marriage, your own family, your own workplace, your own neighbourhood, and nowhere more challenging, I might add, to learn how to trust God and walk with him. Because that's the real task of the Christian life, folks. Because the real joy of the journey that we're on is not the expectation that God's going to, you know, promote me up into more exalted company, um, that he's going to give me better work to do, that he's going to increase my comfort and security. The real joy of the Christian walk is the discovery that in Christ... I'm already in exalted company. I'm in the company of Father, Son and Holy Spirit. I'm already called into exalted work, doing what my Father does. And that in Him, I already have far more security and hope for a far better future, a more glorious inheritance than anything I can shape for myself in my lifetime. So here's the second thing we might want to know. What do we learn about ourselves in this passage as a worshipping community? You know, it's a tragedy for most of us that church on a Sunday is usually radically disconnected from our work, um, from our family and and even from our neighbourhood. Some of us, like me, drive a long way to get here. And as a result, we've been trained to see our Christian lives as internal private affairs, largely detached from the real world, so-called, where we actually have to live and do our business all week. But in fact, gathering like this is one of the most important ways we keep our feet in the way of following Christ, in the way of walking wisely at home and at work. Because it does a number of things. It keeps us from a hidden Christianity. Um, You know, ideally, we would all uh, worship in the same neighbourhood where we live and work, where where we could be easily identified as followers of Jesus, just as much as we are shoppers at IGA, users of the Coles uh, petrol station. People would go, yeah, he's also a Christian. But, But just to gather publicly 
in one form or another, is a visible affirmation. It's a public declaration of the reality of Jesus' resurrection. And so worshipping together keeps us from a faith that becomes simply personal and simply private. Because just to get out of bed and bring your body here, uh, join your voice with others in singing, to come together and address one another with the Scriptures, to talk with one another, even over a cuppa, to pray with one another, to, to begin to offer practical help. All of those things get us out of ourselves and involved in what God is doing in the lives of others. So charity begins at home, here in the worship, worshipping community. And you know in Ephesians, the church, us, is the great mystery of God, revealed from ages past, the manifold wisdom of God, um, made known to the rules and authorities in the heavenly realms. The church, this thing we're doing now, believe it or not, is central to God's genius. This is the spearhead of him bringing all things under the headship of Christ. And so, church is the central activity of God in training us up into Christ-like maturity. The community of believers, those people sitting around you, are God's central instrument for growing us up into a well-formed life. And it's a grave mistake to think we can do without this or to think that we can do without each other. To not take the worshipping community seriously is to not take Jesus seriously because he gave his very life to make us what we are. And finally, we should say this. Paul is less interested in Christians finding a more congenial set of companions, a more exciting career, a more you know, emotional and romantically fulfilling re relationship than he is in Christians coming together, coming to grips with their new identity in Christ. Now, the idea of identity is everywhere in our culture at the moment. There's a strong drive to, to go searching deep within ourselves, if you're uh, younger than me, um, to go looking for an identity that you find within yourself. So you dig down into your feelings about your gender, your sexuality, you dig down into your ethnic identity, um, you go and do the ancestry of your DNA, um, you go hunting out your talents and your skills, you go listening to your desires. Uh, if you're an old person like me, so Gen X or older, um, you go trying to find your identity in the family that you've created or your career or work or the money that you, you earn. But either way, um, we're generally a generation of people searching for identity, a way of constructing ourselves and a way of constructing ourselves as being uh, in some way unique or special or different to everyone else. And really we're asking ourselves do I mean something? Do I have some value in the big scheme of things? But right through Ephesians, Paul has been insisting on the paramount importance of the new identity we have in Christ. That's one of the key phrases of the book of Ephesians, in Christ. And what you might notice is that everything Paul says here about relationships in the household has been redefined in terms of your belonging to Christ. 
he repeatedly puts Christ at the centre. For example, wives submit to your husbands as you do to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church, and so on. Paul has entirely reconfigured the social roles at work and in family around the new identity that believers now have in Christ. He's not after the renewal of social structures. He's after the renewal of people. And as he summarizes when he writes to the Galatian church, in Christ Jesus, you all are children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so to live in a manner worthy of the calling is first and foremost to grasp a hold of that new identity you have in him and to grasp that identity around which everything else will take shape. Peace of the Lord be with you.